What is going on, Energy Strong Nation? It is DRW here with my co-host, Mike Umbro. We are excited for the reboot of the Energy Strong podcast. And today we have Nick Dulius on. What is going on? How are you, Nick? And tell me, where are you from? Are you in Pittsburgh right now? I am just south of Pittsburgh, basically in the suburbs. And uh, I've been basically calling Pittsburgh home for my entire life, Dave. Well, you're, you're very lucky. You had a wonderful run with the Penguins. Uh, I was never a Steelers fan, but I was a big Sidney Crosby fan. So I've always had like a little bit of love for Pittsburgh, just simply based on the sports town. Great sports town. You know, a lot of history, a lot of legacy. Originally, a lot of people don't realize this, but Pittsburgh, first and foremost, back in the day, not long ago, was a baseball town. And it's sort of uh, interesting, exciting on the hockey football side to see how things have changed a little bit saddening, I guess, on the baseball side, how, how things have dropped off. You know, obviously, we're going to talk a lot about energy, natural gas, the state of the world. I, I think those are all really important topics. But but in terms of let's let's start with baseball. That's something I think everyone can relate with. And I think as a business model, obviously, you know, baseball has seen multiple lockouts. It's seen a lot of politics enter the, the sphere. What do you think happens? Like, why do you think Pittsburgh is less of a baseball town now? And are there lessons that other sports franchises can learn, in your opinion? And maybe not sports franchises, but sports leagues that can help build a more resilient business model, perhaps? You know, I don't know how we got on this topic, but I'll tell you, thinking about the economics of baseball and how a team like the Pirates ends up doing what it does, to me, it really comes down to the wiring in the way that the business of baseball has been consciously set up. And I think there's a lot of parallels, not just for sports, but when you get into the energy industry, a lot of the same types of wiring and mechanisms, some of them regulatory, you know, some of them through policy, you end up with sort of the end results that might've been intended in the beginning. So I look at the Pirates and teams that are the smaller market teams in baseball, and people complain about them quite a bit with respect to their lack of payroll, and how they're sort of institutionalizing, uh, not winning. I look at it in some ways as being rational from when you look at the, the incentives and the way the system of baseball is set up. Because to me, you wanna be one of two entities to be a successful baseball franchise financially. You either wanna be a big market team that basically signs the big names, gets the huge TV contracts, the huge stadium deals. And of course that's the Yankees and the Dodgers and, and those types. Or you know, the flip side of that, which is just as successful and profitable, is to be a very small market team and, and not take on risk. Don't make mm -hmm. those investments into the players, the farm systems, the infrastructure, et cetera, because through the way the revenues are generated and the subsidization that's occurring back and forth between teams, you wanna be on one of those two extremes. What you don't wanna be is in the middle where you can't run with the Dodgers and the Yankees and those larger market teams, but you're taking on the risk to the point where your profitability goes away. So I think in some ways, some of these smaller market teams like the Pirates, they're actually doing what the system was designed to have them do. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of parallels to that in areas like the energy industry when it comes to domestic energy, where you're seeing capital flows and capital investments that are being foregone or being avoided that should be made or would have been made in a true free market or a true competitive market. And that's leading to some pretty interesting and some, some pretty negative just like in baseball, some pretty negative consequences for a lot of people. Well, One thing. My, oh, sorry. Go, I was going to hit Mike. No, I was going right. to. I got to plug go. my Padres here. Go. Uh, and and I was going to kind of tie it into the cultural shift. The Padres went through this decade period of just kind of mediocre, stale play on the field, stale management, and we did this whole reboot 
if you will, where we brought in Manny Machado, Fernando Tatis, New Jersey, sparking the culture, tying it in with the Latin community down here. Um, and it kind of juxtaposes nicely with, I think, where we might be going with this in terms of the natural gas industry and what you're doing at CNX of what I noticed from afar anyway, is a real focus on your company culture and your community culture. And I think that conversation broadly in, in energy is lacking in terms of what is the true impact of local jobs, local businesses, local companies that are trying to create a self-sustainable model. You know, Mike, it's one of those things, what, what energy company, what business these days, what policymaker doesn't talk about that inevitable term that's going to pop up, sustainable and sustainability. Mm -hmm. And you just think through what is sustainable, what's not. We could try and debate how to define it all day long, but you know it when you see it, right? Like some other things in life. You'll know it when you see it, if something's sustainable. And to me, a region like Appalachia, so when you're looking at Western Pennsylvania, you're looking at Eastern Ohio, Northern West Virginia, Western Virginia, um, that's a region that's got a lot of resource when it comes to energy and historical as well as current, but to really make it a sustainable bedrock or foundation of the community and the regional economy, to then put it in a position, right, to start exporting some of those widgets and some of that sort of quality of life to beyond the region, there's just a couple of key things to look toward in terms of whether it's truly sustainable or not. I mean, a, are you hiring and retaining talent locally and within the region? B, what are they being compensated at? Are you compensating at levels that are basically making family-sustaining jobs, you know, growing the middle class, which has all kinds of follow-on benefits when it comes to tax base and everything else? And C, are you doing this in a way where you're producing energy that's improving the environment? You can measure that. And the natural gas industry, you know, despite what a lot of uh, so-called experts out there promote, natural gas industry has drastically decarbonized the U.S. economy, it's drastically decarbonized the state of Pennsylvania's economy. I don't know if you guys know this, but if Pennsylvania was a standalone developed nation, it would have been the only developed nation to have met the Paris Accords on its own. And it did wow. that, right, not through policy, not through, you know, government regulation. Frankly, it did that in spite of, it did that because of innovation and ingenuity of the private sector, of, of risk takers, of, you know, people taking on the approach like the Padres did. With, in terms of how they wanted to basically invest in, and change uh, the brand or the trademark, not because of you know, what the policy was dictating we're going to be the winners and the losers. As I said, in many ways, in spite of that. So from a sustainability perspective, can you generate profitability on a consistent basis? Can you, as defined as something like free cash flow, can you de-risk what you're doing? And then can you reinvest those, those proceeds, that free cash flow, into the workforce, into the community, when you're reinvesting into just areas that are underserved, et cetera, and into sort of the long-termism of someplace like Appalachia or something like the domestic natural gas industry. If you can check those boxes, then we all know that's going to be sustainable, right? No matter how you define sustainability. If you can't check those boxes, or if you're walking around why you can't or the reasons why you shouldn't, um, then in the end, that industry or that endeavor may not indeed be sustainable, even though it's warranted to be such. Mm -hmm. So Nick, we're going to talk today a lot about natural gas. I want to get to the Elizabeth Warren letter that was sent in November in light of the context of where we're at as an industry today. But for those who are not familiar with CNX, do you want to introduce the company, 
what you do, where you are, how you view the world, just to get everyone sort of up to speed on why why people should care about what CNX is doing in the context of the entire natural gas space in the United States. Sure. Um, we're a public company, stock ticker CNX. We're a very old company. Our legacy stretches back now almost 160 years. When we were first incorporated, Abraham Lincoln was president, which is sort of hard to, wow. to believe. And originally it was a coal company, a coal mining entity, consolidation coal company, uh, that through the years, probably in the late 80s, really pioneered uh, the liberation of methane from coal seams, a la coal bed methane. And that developed and grew into what was our natural gas business, including our, our midstream pipeline assets and infrastructure. And as the years went by, we saw that as being really the growth outlet where the future was for energy and energy markets. We got bigger into that. Here came the shale revolution with Marcellus and, and Utica Shales in Appalachia. And through the years, uh, over the past 10 years or so, we basically divested and separated from the coal business to become a pure play Appalachian natural gas and, and pipeline uh, midstream company. So a lot of that, again, sort of catalyzed by technology, innovation, uh, that type of thing, and getting into originally from coal into coal bed methane, coal bed methane into gas processing, transportation, Marcellus shale, Utica shale after that. And now uh, we're looking at another chapter of all kinds of new technological innovations to basically do you know, a couple of things. One would be to basically change the way the industry goes about extracting, processing, transporting natural gas to do it more efficiently, lower carbon intensity, um, lower risk, all the, those things. And we see a lot of opportunity with the proprietary technologies we've developed to basically partner with different players in those different links of that development chain to fundamentally change how those things are, are being done. And in a good way, of course. Um, the other bucket of how this technology can be applied for sort of the next chapter is to get natural gas into um, new markets. And those new markets specifically going to things like ground transportation with CNG, compressed mm -hmm. natural gas, aviation uh, with liquefied or LNG natural gas, um, looking at uh, natural gas as a feedstock for different types of manufacturing processes to displace other types of products uh, that are out there in the marketplace. And I know a lot of attention recently, right, has been given toward export of natural gas and, and what that means with LNG when you look at Europe and Ukraine and Russia and the geopolitics of that or Japan and India versus China. And that's certainly true. But there's this whole other story, I think, developing with respect to domestic energy and particularly natural gas, when you start looking at what happens, you know, what's the net net accounting, the balance of, uh, of positives and negatives, when you start looking at domestic natural gas, displacing, let's say foreign oil with ground transportation, mm -hmm. displacing jet aviation fuel with, uh, with flying and commercial flight or, or, uh, or carrier flight with, uh, with transporting commodities, or looking at new manufacturing processes uh, to do something to provide some product to society in a better, right, lower environmental impact, lower cost, more efficient way. I think that's going to be a huge story for the domestic natural gas industry in the coming years. And just like we were in the past with CBM and the shale revolution, right, CNX, we want to play a, a lead role with respect to providing those technological solutions sooner rather than later, right, more efficiently mm -hmm. versus, you know, more clunkily or, or in a less efficient manner. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I'm, I'm all about buy local. And I, I just love the focus there on, on what you can do domestically, uh, not just shipping natural or, you know, LNG overseas. It's really it's actually, great to hear. 
it's so obvious when you just start talking about it, let's say among the three of us, but then going back to the, the letter from the Senator from Massachusetts, right? The reality is um, we cannot get a, a molecule of methane, a widget that we manufacture in Pennsylvania to Boston CityGate. And this gets back to these incentives that we spoke about when we were talking baseball. The reason is through conscious design, right? There are regulations and impediments on capital flows and permitting, et cetera, that will not allow the risk taker in the free market in the private sector to make effectively infrastructure investments, you know, in the era of build back better, like you think this would be the, just the type of stuff we'd wanna do. Um, you can't build that 400 mile pipe. And it's ridiculous when you think about what the inherent sort of options are going to be for Bostonians say to get their energy met, their energy demand needs met. It's going to be inherently at higher cost, you know, less resiliency, um, more risk. And I think a definitely higher carbon footprint when you look at comparing it to something like domestic or Appalachian natural gas. And the same story, of course, I know you, you're Mike in San Diego, right? Same story with what's going on in California mm -hmm. and other basins in the Western United States. It doesn't make sense under any of these sort of qualitative or quantitative metrics that we're holding and justifying all these policies too. So I think we need to get back to sort of the math and the science, um, transparent apples to apples comparisons. And if we do that, there is a whole step change improvement in the market demand for natural gas domestically. And that's going to reduce carbon footprint of the nation further. That's gonna grow the GDP. That's gonna grow the middle class. And that's basically going to improve our geopolitical standing, which by the way, we could use uh, any day now. And it's interesting that you address this because you know not a lot of people realize that since 2005, the U.S. has reduced our CO2 intensity by 15% through emissions. And the primary reason that that happened was coal to natural gas switching. And I think when you look at Europe and you look at what's happening with them reactivating coal plants, we're also realizing that there is a cost that we're maybe not talking about in the full cycle. I wanted to take just a moment because we're talking about Elizabeth Warren's letter. It was sent in November of 2021 and, and just two highlights. I wanted well, highlights. We're going to call them highlights, but they were lowlights um, that she wrote. And it talks about political rhetoric. And Nick, my, my question to you as you listen to this, what does the industry need to do differently to to be able to more effectively push back on what will clearly sound ridiculous. So she said, and she wrote, in this case, ConocoPhillips, she wrote a lot of the, the CEOs. I'm writing regarding my concern about rising natural gas prices in America for American consumers, the impact that it will have for families struggling to pay their bills and keep their houses warm this winter, and the extent to which these prices are being driven by energy companies' corporate greed and profiteering as they moved record amounts of natural gas out of the country. And then skipping a paragraph and just saying, these high energy costs are contributing to high inflation, hitting consumers directly in their pocketbooks and increasing production costs for consumer goods. But these prices are not set in stone and they're not result of a market that works for American consumers. Instead, they appear to be the result of a successful profit maximization effort by massive multinational oil and gas conglomerates. And clearly when she talks about this, she's talking about the export and we're now well north of 12 BCF a day as a country exporting natural gas where the price in Europe yesterday or in Germany rather was $50 per you know per million cubic feet equivalent and right now we're trading at about 550 in the US so there's a huge arbitrage opportunity so Nick how do you respond just in in broad strokes to to that rhetoric 
to, to the lack of education and, and what do we do to do a better job? Well, look, a lot of this is, you know, promoting, pushing an ideology in the political science of things. That's what politicians specialize in. Um, that's what the left specializes in. The good news is we've got sort of the science, not the political science, the science behind us, backing us. We've got the math backing us. And I think the average common American out there, when they look at just the basics, they get what's going on. And this year that is 2022 has proven to be sort of the, the perfect Petri dish to put a lot of these things into action to see, you know, what does the policy ultimately lead to? What is the true root cause versus a symptom? And we're confusing symptoms with root causes. So, so right. Europe to me was a great example of this, right? We had policy that said in Europe, first thing you need to do European nations is shutter all of your natural gas fields, okay? Under sort of climate goals, energy policy goals, et cetera. And then the second thing we're gonna do is we're gonna have this mad dash to wind and solar at scale. And I'm not against wind and solar, but at scale, there are certain realities when it comes to carbon intensity, when it comes to cost, when it comes to just doability, okay? And reliability. Yeah. And then when the demand for energy continues to inevitably continue to grow, right? As advanced economies wanna see happen, you need a plug because <laughs> if you've shuttered your domestic and you've retired your coal plants or your gas plants, or you've not allowed pipelines to be built, and you've had this mad dash to wind and solar, and they can only provide so much generation demand when the wind's blowing and the sun is shining, but you still have this energy demand plug that you need to fill, what do you do? Well, what they did was they built a few pipes coming from Russia, and Russia said, we'll provide you natural gas. Uh, so the plug was Russian natural gas. Russia knew this. They're not stupid. They understand what's going on. They feel leverage because of this. They feel emboldened because of this. They know they have Europe by the short hairs and they take some liberties when it comes to the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, when they invade Ukraine, right, the prices for commodities go up. Um, there's this talk, there's these, we hold benefit concerts and protests. But in the end, everybody knows that Europe really can't do anything with respect to shutting off the valve of natural gas from Russia anytime soon. So to me, people say, well, pricing for things like natural gas or oil, that's because of Putin. Putin is a symptom. Okay, what really right. the root cause is you got to back up. It is basically the energy policies that enabled, that emboldened a Putin to do what he did. And it's the same within the United States. When you've got these discrepancies in markets of $30 a million BTU in Europe and, you know, $4 or, or sub four now in the United States in certain basins, um, that would be crying out for private investment, infrastructure investment to normalize those markets. And typically that would occur. But again, we can't normalize the market right now between Pennsylvania supply and Boston demand. How are we going to normalize the market between Pennsylvania supply and European demand? That's an even longer haul, right? So a lot of this I fear, what's going on with Europe and Ukraine and what's going on with inflation and energy prices, I fear it's just a precursor. Because when you start to superimpose on top of that situation, what we're doing say within the United States when it comes to our energy policy, we're basically taking that Europe-Russia situation, and now we're trading it for a much larger uh, ecosystem of energy with the United States or North America, and we're basically substituting Russia for China when it comes to sort of, again, where all these materials, metals, et cetera, have to be mined, processed, manufactured to make wind turbines and solar panels. And I think, again, like Russia, China, they're not stupid. They know, you know, sort of geopolitical leverage they know energy security is national security or lack thereof is lack thereof. 
And what that means when it comes to the geopolitics of Taiwan or the South China Sea or you know, Western Republican democracies, I'm very concerned about that. So we got to go back to, I think, the, the math and just the science of this and recognize that there are limitations to wind and solar. There are carbon footprints to wind and solar. And when you look at carbon footprints, we can't just put our blinders on and say scopes one and two only. It's scopes one, two, and three, because the atmosphere doesn't care where the CO2 is being emitted from. And when you look at wind and solar and you look at it from cradle to grave, scopes one through three, they've got enormous carbon footprints tied to them, particularly at scale. When you start getting into backup and resiliency and that type of thing and reliability and the scale of them in terms of what you would need to disrupt and the carbon that you would need to admit to make that happen in a place like the United States or in a state like Pennsylvania, right? It's mind boggling. And when you go back to that math, what you're gonna end up with is recognizing A, all activity has a carbon footprint at the end of the day. B, you know, the most, again, sustainable sort of form or piece of the portfolio of the energy mix when it comes to say the United States or Europe or the developing world is going to have a, a foundational piece that is natural gas. And the lowest carbon intensive natural gas that you'll find in the world is produced in basins like Appalachia within the United States. And if you start with that premise, then suddenly your policies will be informed on how you're developing these things where you will see more pipeline infrastructure within the United States being constructed. You will see more activity upstream to increase supply, to respond to price disruptions or, or price disparities between different markets. You will see LNG infrastructure. You will see natural gas getting into downstream uh, product uses like ground transportation fleets and, and aviation like we spoke of earlier. These things will just inevitably happen with the private sector. But what has to happen is the policies at a minimum, they don't have to support that. They just have to get out of the way and allow for mm -hmm. that to happen. And capitalism and the free market and private enterprise will find a way to get that done. Just like a baseball team will find a way to put that best team <laughs> on the field based on all the assumptions around it. But if you start artificially wiring things to put your thumb on a scale here to favor this, or to you know, put your hand over there to deter that, you're gonna end up with artificial results that are less than optimal. So I got, I have one sticking with the baseball theme. I'll, I'll tee you up for one, Nick. Uh, I, I really enjoyed your irrefutable energy truths. I saw that on, whether it was your podcast or uh, a standalone, but number nine, political quietism is a recipe for disaster. And I'm wondering as we, as we talk about this, one thing we see from a lot of the majors is quiet. Now, Mike Worth came out a couple of weeks ago, last week and, and wrote a letter and we're starting to see some of the some of the leaders of big companies find their voice. But how do we as an industry work with policymakers when both sides seem so far apart? And I know you focus on the extreme middle, but maybe walk us through how how can we, you know, on this Energy Strong podcast, how can we explore that middle space and then branching out into our communities and companies? How do we, you know, educate common folks about the value of the resources we have here that are being purposefully distorted by, you know, extreme politicians? Well, you know, to me, a great example of what we would need to do would be Energy Strong. 
and, and that's why you know I'm such a huge supporter of what you guys are doing and just an avid follower. I've got I've got the gear, I've got everything because <laughs> I'm all in on that. In in this issue of political quietism, I get it. As I said, I think in that piece that you're referencing, I subscribed to that for probably the first 20 years of my career. And I stayed out of all the, the debate, keep your head down, do your job, uh, let the name callers you know, call you what they want, but you, you just stay focused and that's how, that's how you, you win. It's sort of like the hockey analogy of when the instigator keeps you know, late hits and everything else, there's, there's some players are just really good at just staying focused on scoring goals and winning the game and, and getting to the, uh, the final buzzer. But then when you start thinking about, and it, it's you know, conceptualizing this in parallel with all this talk about the social responsibility of a business and ethical duties and moral duties, what we do within domestic energy, you know, you talk about motivation and the why of your business or your endeavor. We bring quality of life to the world. There's no bigger why that you're going to find. And we are not making, what was the, uh, what was the, the term where somebody was talking about a soft drink company? And you know, it's hard to get motivated when you're selling sugared water to the masses, right? Right. You're bringing, without us, everything stops. People die. Life becomes miserable. So that's a huge motivator. And with that motivation, as exciting as that is, comes a moral and ethical responsibility to not take the path of political quietism and to thoughtfully and to respectfully engage in public discourse and to talk the science and to talk the math and to talk the policy in a way where people understand what you do on behalf of society, what you do on behalf of them. Because to get this wrong, there's going to be a whole bunch of collateral damage to a whole bunch of, again, here's a, a common term we always, always hear these days, a whole bunch of different stakeholders mm -hmm. right? that you might think have nothing to do with the domestic energy industry, but at the end of the day, they've got a lot to do. They've got a lot riding on the ability of the domestic energy industry to do its thing. So I view it in the end is, if anything, a moral and ethical responsibility. In this industry, this great industry or industries of ours, we have got to get on the same page with that responsibility. We've got to get on the same page. Okay, I might disagree with your math and you might disagree, Dave, with, uh, with my science, but in the end, we've got to figure this out because we've got an ethical and a moral imperative to do so. We close those gaps and then we go basically promote what we believe to be the truth based on our reasonable and transparent you know, views of things and we, we carry the banner. I think that first step, um, unfortunately, an energy strong has been in the not too distant past, the exception. It needs mm -hmm. to become the rule. And with all you know, the world of flame now with inflation and energy and now maybe translating into food scarcity and everything else, I think this is the time, better late than never, right? But this is the time where these industries domestically, it's time to, it's time to stand up, do our jobs and lead from a moral and an ethical imperative. Well, and that, that's a great analogy, your instigator analogy, because Sidney Crosby, as I talked about earlier, every once in a while, he'll go cross-check a guy in the face when it's taking it too long. And I do think that Mike Worth is an example. Darren Woods is an example. I know Toby Rice has been a leader on this as well, really leading and pushing back. One of the things that's remarkable that comes out of Europe constantly right now is this concept of the volatility of fossil fuels is exactly why we need to double down on renewables. And it strikes me because the, a lot of people don't know this in europe they only produce 10 percent of the natural gas that we produce in the u.s and as you know due to pipelines and lng infrastructure we're effectively capped and have been for a long time and so when europe talks about the use of resources they literally need a russia 
to import natural gas. That creates a geopolitical volatility. In the United States, in Pennsylvania, we have so much resources that companies like yours are being able to develop and exploit, and we're not maximizing their potential. Now, I wonder in terms of how you think about your business model and what you're seeing in terms of actual supply chain challenges in your in your business. We're talking about sand, we're talking about crews, we're talking about frac crews, we're talking about rig availability, the cost of steel. Can you give some insight as you're looking at 2022 budget and 2023 and beyond, how you think about that supply chain crunch? Do you see it passing or is it going to be a moderator for the foreseeable future in terms of how much you could do to ramp up production? Great question. Uh, supply chain, right? Sometimes, oftentimes in today's sort of world, when you're looking or watching a CNBC or you're talking from a policy perspective, it gets segregated as a separate issue um, from inflation and from energy scarcity. In the end, I think they all, inflation, supply chain, and energy uh, scarcity all share the end goal of much of our policies and regulation these days, whether it's US, Europe, global. Um, to basically manufacture scarcity. That's what it's designed to do. And then when a scarcity occurs and happens and manifests and prices rise, I say, well, see that price volatility. That's why we need to do that. Well, that was interesting because you, you manufactured that um, through, again, the, the sort of tilting of the, of the scale, so to speak. When you look at supply chain, I believe that is probably the single biggest impediment right now to a whole bunch of supply demand equilibrium, including, of course, energy, but way beyond energy. And it goes back to, again, some fundamental core root causes. Um, we've got a labor participation problem in this nation by design. The policies created the labor participation problem. So we look at low unemployment, and I see the numbers all the time, but recognize, right, that does not include, it excludes people that are not seeking employment. And there's a whole bunch of Americans these days when you go all across the country that are not seeking employment by design because of policies. And that's, that's a bad thing, right? The work ethic is something that built the country into the envy of the world. That's a big contributor to the supply chain constraints. These, these commodity issues and the availability of them, right? That's another big problem. Some of that or much of that driven by regulation in terms of how you manufacture them, how you transport them and ship them, and how you ultimately utilize them. So you start adding up the cumulative effect of regulation beyond energy rights. This is beyond the energy industry itself. It manufactures this scarcity that we call supply chain. We call it supply chain constraints. And my concern is that when you're looking at something like a base industry such as energy, and you want to say increase the supply of something, of the widget, of the methane molecule, or of, of oil, or whatever, the kilowatt hour, whatever you're looking at, the supply chain constraints, they've been, again, wired into our economy now where it's not something that's just going to work itself out in 30 days. It's not something that, you know, we need to come off the, the pandemic shutdown hangover, right, and get things back up, you know, get the gears up and running again. No, this has been wired and plumbed to do exactly what it's doing. And this is going to be more, you know, moderate, long-term slash permanent. So when you want to double your rig fleet or you want to increase the pace of whatever the activity is, or you want to flow more, it's all going to go back to these supply uh, chain constraints and the timing tied to them. And a lot of those are not going to work themselves out in 30 days because it's not a short-term issue. It's something that's been, again, wired into the, the energy and the economy systems by design. 
So I think supply chain is probably going to be the, the biggest challenge of all. Um, I think, you know, again, this goes back to when you look at something like energy sourcing and energy supply, do you want, if you're the case of Boston, to keep using that example, do you want a 3,000, 4,000 mile supply chain of getting LNG from Russia, which they have done in the city of Boston, ironically, or do you want a 400 mile supply chain within your national borders from a state like Pennsylvania? In 2022, if you're talking about any industry out there other than sort of the kilowatt hour and the BTU to deliver to Boston, everybody would inevitably say, well, I want the 400 mile supply chain domestically. But when it comes to this, right, and which one, by the way, has the lower CO2 footprint? Well, the answer, of course, is the, the natural gas from Pennsylvania, whether it's wired into the state of Massachusetts or whether it's piped, is a much less carbon intensive endeavor scopes one through three than wind or solar from China or LNG from Russia or wherever the case might be. So I think supply chain um, is a huge sort of root cause contributor to much of what ails, not just energy, but our economy. And I, I sense, again, my concern is we're just starting to get a feel for how significant and what the duration of that supply chain um, sort of constraint consent uh, sort of uh, timeline can be. And you're gonna see it in every piece of the development chain when it comes to something like energy production. You'll see it with uh, rig crews and you know, can you get a, a rig crew together? How quickly can you add an incremental crew that knows what they're doing, that's competent in their jobs? Um, if you wanted to add that rig tomorrow, there's gonna to be issues with that. You're gonna see it with respect to the infrastructure for transporting and processing. We've, you know, anywhere you look across compressor capacity, pipes, processing, et cetera, there's longer and longer lead time items all across the board for critical components and critical pieces of that, of that infrastructure. You're going to see it with respect to the next conversion. So if you want to build a power plant to convert the natural gas into a kilowatt hour, if you want to build a manufacturing facility, all the critical components that are needed for that, uh, you're going to experience the same thing. And then all the transportation and logistical infrastructure on top of it. Um, it's, it's going to be incredibly challenging. And this is a, another contributor, right, to the inflationary pressures. So when things are taking longer and they're more expensive, and then people start, if you talk to major construction firms today, and I, I know some of the, the leaders of some of these firms and just talking to them to get a sense for what they're dealing with, when they go into bid projects today and they're looking at the risk to their balance sheet and for liquidated damages and things like that, they are inevitably extending the timeline and upping the cost. To cover themselves. So some of this becomes, you know, self-fulfilling, like inflation right. begets more inflation and it just builds on itself with regard to expectations. I think we're going to have to contend with this for some time. I agree. It's scary. It's frightening. One of the things we we deal with in California related to supply chain is, is the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And we have this mindset that it's somehow environmentally friendly to outsource our production of basically everything. In our case, we're bringing in oil from Ecuador instead of the San Joaquin Valley in California. And we see this with the ability of independent drivers now to even access the port. So now we're totally locked into this union labor policy and it's going to jack up the price to haul things out of there. Um, one thing I, I wanted to circle back to, if it's okay with you guys, on the emissions of using natural gas for heavy transportation, because this was something that was big you know, the Pickens plan was big when I was kind of going through grad school and, and we thought, well, yeah, let's, let's go to CNG for these heavy trucks. It, it displaces some 
something like, is it 90 to 95% of the particulate matter you're scrubbing out of the air? It's an immediate savings to the environment. How do you see that when we're, when we are shifting everything to these massive hubs where you have heavy freight moving everything and the opportunity for your product to, to clean things up? So, so two, two biggies there. And you guys are like hitting on so many great issues, right? Like <laughs> I, I wrote a piece recently. I, I have a family, a son in Los Angeles and Flying into LA, I'm always you know, increasingly impressed in a bad way with what you see when you look at the port of Long Beach and just the, the, the ships like stretching out as far as the eye and the horizon can stretch. And you know, how has that sort of bottleneck, how was it created and why can't it be de-bottlenecked? Well, it was created through the cumulative regulatory state regulatory environment. And yep. some of it energy centric, some of it you know, having nothing to do with energy. But in the end, the cumulative impact is we created scarcity, we created a bottleneck. Um, getting to your question on things like CNG and fleet transportation, the way we think of this is, you know, there are many proponents out there that say, well, we need a 100% renewable grid, all wind, all solar, battery backup. There are others out there that are proponents of the hydrogen economy, right, and in green hydrogen um, in particular. And those options and those technologies, they may pan out, they may not. They may be huge successes, they might be abject failures. But what's interesting about natural gas and the technology applications that it brings to the table, and ground transportation is, is a big example of this, you can catalyze, improve the chances, accelerate the time to something like green or renewable EVs with backup and everything in between mm -hmm. with something like a natural gas conversion, which can then be blended, you know, step change wise with something like hydrogen and a lot of these types of engines and whatnot. So you don't have to pick an either or. When it comes to natural gas, playing a bigger role in something like transportation fleet for ground transportation or something like aviation or some other type of manufacturing process. And in fact, not only does it not prohibit something like the hydrogen economy or something like renewables and EVs at scale or at a bigger scale than what we see now, it might actually improve the chances and the economics and accelerate the timeline for those. So again, from a like just a risk management, logic, math perspective, it's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you believe in wind and solar at scale, and I, again, I have my doubts about that, but if you believe in that, then you want natural gas conversion sooner on things like you know, large trucks um, versus later. You just do. So it's it's interesting that you raise it because I was I too was going to touch on the CNG and I was remembering in Canada way back in the day had a VP of the natural gas economy and obviously the world has moved in a very anti fossil fuel way but it also raises the point that you know during 2020 natural gas was a dollar seventy five in MCF very few wells that any operator could drill without hedging were viable a lot of cash flow issues due to debt and and the inherent capital required for our industry led to hedges in the sort of 250 to 350 range if you were lucky and then we've seen in the last two months natural gas hit nine in mcf and has now recently pulled back to 550. so how do you think about again from a volatility standpoint compressed natural gas is now arguably 4x more expensive here arguably 10x more expensive in europe that makes it prohibitive and then it's moving around so much. What do you plan for and how do you use hedges in your business to help stabilize that as you look at your business plan over the next five years, if at all? Yeah, sort of two, two big thoughts there. One, um, you bring up a really good point on sort of the economic spread. When you look at natural gas in a different state, CNG, LNG versus something like diesel or something like uh, aviation fuel. 
And if you can convert the form of natural gas from gaseous state into a CNG or an LNG format in a very cost-efficient, carbon-efficient way, which again, a lot of these technologies that we've developed uh, do just that. And you can do it on a well-by-well -well or pad-by-pad -pad basis. You don't have to build a huge facility to do so. Then you've got plenty of economic arbitrage between you know, what you're displacing versus what the cost is that you're replacing it with. Factor of three to one, four to one in, in many instances between sort of per million BTU diesel, um, again, aviation fuel versus something like CNG, LNG. So there is going to be, and they tend to correlate, right? When, when natural gas prices run up, oil diesel is also running up. So there's going to be an economic uh, rationale for making that, that type of an investment if the technology is there to, to, to provide it. And then when you get into the hedging discussions, it just depends, I think, on what type of a company, what type of a strategy um, you want to employ. We, we've always taken at CNX a bit of a different, you know, quite a different approach to things where um, we, we have you know, potential investors or capital markets that say, we want exposure to the commodity. Like we want to invest in natural gas because we want exposure to the natural gas price volatility. And we respectfully tell those potential investors, we're not the company for you. Because what we're doing is something different. We're solving for free cash flow per share and methodical free cash flow per share generation. And if we're the low cost producer in a low cost basin like we are, then we've got the wherewithal, the ability to hedge, to take the revenue risk off the table into the future and to do it at very attractive rate of returns and, and cash margins. And we're gonna do that. And that means when gas prices run up to nine or $10, yes, we, we don't uh, see or experience much of that upside, right? And that also means when gas prices plummet, we're not going to be as exposed to that. But what we're really solving for is to be able to methodically generate free cash flow per share during all sort of portions of that commodity cycle. Because then we want to take that free cash flow per share and we want to allocate it in the right places in the right times. And we think over the long term, for us, with our cost position and the, uh, the asset base that we control, that that is the best way to create long-term per share value. Now, a lot of other companies in the energy space or domestic natural gas or oil, et cetera, take a completely different approach. They're much, much more um, exposed to commodity by design, more risk reward uh, weighting, different than what ours might be. But that's the approach we take. And we've done that you know, through down cycles uh, in the commodity sort of curve, through up cycles, and we're going to continue to stick to that uh, into the future. And what's really cool about this is that if you start to take that approach coupled with this price arbitrage of sort of natural gas in the form of CNG or LNG versus what it could be displacing. And then you put on top of it sort of the CO2 intensity benefits of doing so and the supply chain benefits of doing so and the domestic and geopolitical security benefits of doing so. Again, from a very objective, rational basis, there wouldn't be anybody that would be against that. And oh, by the way, on top of it, you really don't need subsidy or government incentive to do so. You just need the sort of prohibitions and the penalties and the vilification of what we're trying to do to be removed. You need the removal of a negative. You don't need the institution of a positive. My mind's blown because I was under the impression fossil fuels are heavily subsidized, but. <laughs> I always say, you know, I would gladly take off every form of subsidy across every form of, of energy production, generation, utilization, take all those proceeds and use it to, I don't know, reduce 30 plus trillion dollars in, federal debt or something like that, or you know, <laughs> tax rebate back to taxpayers or you know, the underserved communities, whatever you, you see is, is earmarking that. But let's, you know, head to head, 
let's let the risk reward and the private sector figure out how to find those equilibrium points, we'd be in a lot better position from a CO2 perspective, again, from like a geopolitical perspective, and definitely from a quality of life perspective. And I sort of like the chances of the domestic natural gas industry in that type of an environment. Well, and we've, we've talked about this, I think, on our kickoff show, Mike, uh, when we rebooted the, the program and I was talking about COVID from the perspective that when government intervenes, they have to have bureaucrats and they're not as fast moving as the market. And so I remember in Colorado in March of 2020, before the lockdowns, people stopped going out for dinners. They stopped going to avalanche games because they were afraid. And so if you had just said, here's the deal and educate and let the market people would have re-entered society at the pace they felt appropriate and then read the market signals. And it seems to me that all of these intervening forces of, okay, well, we need to put a, a cap on oil exports or natural gas exports or, or pipelines and, and all these regulatory bodies are all kind of coming together. And then it's, it's superimposed by, as you probably saw the tweet this weekend from President Biden, uh, demanding that all gasoline retail stations, most of which are owned by mom and pops, uh, to lower the price of gasoline and not just to do it, but to do it now. And so you have sort of not only these regulations that don't make sense, but then we have political rhetoric that weighs in in a, in a very counter markets, you know, arguably unintelligent way. And even Jeff Bezos, who I'm sure you saw, responded. And so you know when a Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, one of the most liberal um, newspapers in the country, is weighing in on things Biden is saying, you know we're in a really interesting state of the world. We, right. we have reached the extreme for sure when, uh, when that is happening. You're exactly right. And look, in the end, energy has become sort of ground zero for all this because all this cumulative regulation that we've been talking about it's going after one of three things. Some of it is to raise the cost of producing it or to reduce the supply. That's the oldest, most traditional area of regulation. Um, a second bucket has been designed to basically stymie the demand. That's through the pipeline, lack of pipeline infrastructure, et cetera. So you can't get the widget to the demand centers that are sort of clamoring for more of it. And then the third piece of this is the newest of the three um, which is basically to try to stifle the capital inflows into the space. Mm -hmm. That might be SEC climate risk rule proposals. That might be ESG investing. It could be a whole host of things. But those three are the big buckets of where if you took each and every individual regulation, it typically falls into one of those three buckets. And again, increase the cost, reduce supply, stymie demand, starve it of capital. And those three things, what are they designing to do? Create scarcity. And why do you want to create scarcity? Because then, you know, a bureaucrat or the administrative state can control scarcity mm -hmm. and meet it out. And, and basically that creates power, that creates budget, that creates staff. And it's, it's an organism that behaves in its self-interest, you know, just like any other. We always say that, well, if you work for the government, you're altruistic and you're looking after the public good and the public interests. Um, they, they operate in self-interest just like a business would. And when the self-interest comes at sort of a net-net win-lose where you know, the growth comes at the expense of something else, as it often does in the case of government, that something else is free enterprise or the individual or individual rights, you know, GDP, quality of life, that type of thing, that, that's a heavy price to pay. Yeah. One of the, one of the stories on, on, um, on that, it reminds me of my son. Uh, we have a saying in our phrase, uh, no one cares it's your birthday. And 
And the reason that that came up is we were going into a restaurant when he was 11 and it was like early February and his birthday is the end of March. And he said, Dad, are you excited about my birthday? And so I proceeded to get on one knee and said, no, Andrew, I'm not thinking about you or your birthday. I'm doing what everyone else on the planet is doing, which is thinking about myself. And when we're done this conversation, I'm going to go back to doing that. That's a really valuable lesson. And so I think from your from your altruism and and government is just here to help and not for profit is just here to help. Everyone is trying to help themselves pay their mortgage, themselves pay, you know, for their boathouse. But to that end, the energy industry is so important that the policy decisions we make are 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 global in scale and will impact the quality of life. It's why I love what we do. Nick, for the last question, what would you leave listeners with about CNX, natural gas, how they should be perceiving the world and and what plans you have for the company in the coming year? I think, you know, from the perspective of domestic energy, um, Appalachia, CNX, I, I think of it this way. Every day, uh, we've got a great team, gets up, comes to work in the morning, and they're all doing their, their different piece, uh, uh, sort of solving their piece of the puzzle. But in the end, we're producing that widget, that product, and it's going to do one of three things. It's either going to take the region that we're all from and that we operate within, it's going to make it better. It's going to grow the middle class. It's going to make the economy stronger. It's going to improve the environmental um, sort of uh, metrics across a whole bunch of different uh, sort of emission limits better, et cetera, et cetera. Or that's going to be exported to another region within this country. And in the aggregate, whether it's the Southeast or the Northeast or the Midwest, or what other basins might be doing for California in the West, it's gonna make the United States a much stronger entity from a GDP perspective, from a geopolitical standing perspective. I mean, it's just going to put us in a much stronger position. And when the United States is in a strong position, when it comes to the globe, good things are gonna happen across. The third thing it might end up doing that widget it doesn't get utilized here domestically in the region. And if it's not going to get utilized nationally, it could end up right changing downstream sort of industries and or other global economies. And if some of those economies are in a developing world or where, where life right now, unfortunately, is not anywhere near where it should be, or if some of those economies are feeling some geopolitical pressures right from China or from Russia, um, that is a... a situation with respect to individual rights and freedoms that is very, very significant. It applies to, to billions of people across the planet. So this gets back to the why, whether it's the company or Appalachia or the U.S. domestic energy industry itself, we've got a massive why. And that why can affect the people in your hometown or in your region, right? It can affect people that you know are all across this nation of ours to, to continue on with a, a great lineage and history that we've all enjoyed 200 plus years, or it could be something that could drastically improve the state of the world all over the globe. And to me, like that's the fundamental reason why we need to get these things right, why I need to be uh, good advocates for the industry and for the space, and why we've got, again, that ethical moral duty uh, to take it upon ourselves as that sort of added something that we bring to the table. That's great. Before before David brings us home, I just want to say thank you, Nick, for your leadership in the industry and for joining us today. It's It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, loved it. And thanks for having me, guys. Of course. I'll be watching. I'll be, I'll be giving the thumbs up and all that stuff across all the platforms <laughs> and everything else. So keep doing what you're doing. 
Well, we sure appreciate it. And we encourage all the listeners, we encourage all of your communities to get active, take the time to talk to your neighbors and advocate for what it is that we do. Share the facts. There's tons of people you can follow on LinkedIn. Mike, Nick, me, Energy Strong. Get out there, get active, be polite, be communicable, communicative and communicable as well. Until next time, be safe, be good, have a great day and bye for now.